0: If you've got a Bible, open up to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. We are finishing up our series through the book of Jonah. The last four weeks we've been here. This has been a really fun series to work through. Um, I don't know about you, but in many ways for me, I have felt like this is the first time I've read the book of Jonah. Uh, I've read the book of Jonah before. But I am learning so much about God. I'm learning so much about how busted I am. I'm learning so much about how God chases me in the midst of my running around on him. I feel like this is the first time I've ever read the book of Jonah, just the way it's been so fresh and so new. And so we are wrapping up uh, the study today. If you haven't been with us and you're just sort of jumping in today, um, be sure to go back on our website and catch these messages um, if if today is of interest to you. We feel like, um, again, there's been so much that God has shown our church through this series. As we finish the book today, here's one sort of caveat I want to give, one sort of reminder that I want to give before we jump into the passage. When we read the book of Jonah, so much of the way we have understood the book of Jonah through sort of uh, our church experience, if you've been around church any length of time, is sort of as this um, moralistic story, right? Where it's about this guy who gets this call from God to go to this really scary other city with scary people that's like they're enemies to his people Um, And he doesn't want to go, and so he throws a tantrum, and uh, he just jumps into the sea, and then a whale comes to swallow him. And then he's like, I don't want to be in the whale anymore. So he's like, I think I'll go, God, where you tell me to go. He goes there, and then he preaches, and everyone gets saved. And we've made this a moral story to say, hey, isn't that great, when we obey God, good things happen, don't be like Jonah, make a popsicle stick craft and go home, right? That's kind of how we've boiled this thing down. The point of this book is not, don't be like Jonah. That's not the point. This is not a book about Jonah, right? We've made it that. It's not that. It's not don't be like Jonah because the reality is we already are like him. We already are like him. This is not a book about Jonah. This is a book about God's grace and how he pursues our Jonah-like hearts, right? That's what this book is about. It's about God's heart for the world and then how we can join him in that as he pursues our Jonah-like hearts. Like, that's what this book is about. You get it? And, and so I want to jump in today Jonah chapter 4 as this whole thing comes to a close. And we get to sort of the final, the final scene of this four-act play. So here we go. We'll start back in... Chapter three, verse 10. So this is the last verse of chapter three to kind of give us a running start into chapter four. And we'll read chapter four, verses one through 11. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen behind me. Um, and uh, I'll read this, pray, and jump in from there. The voice of Jesus speaks to us like this. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them And he did not do it, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country, that this this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger, you're abounding in steadfast love, and you relent from disaster, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what should become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come over Jonah But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for this plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, which there are more than 120,000 persons, who do not know their right hand from their left, and as much cattle. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for this book. Thank you that you you would speak to us. Thank you that we could read your word, God, with all the authority of your voice present in this room, that we could hear your voice over us and not die, not perish, but that you would give us your voice with grace. God, I pray you would shape us by your scriptures, you would hold us by your scriptures, you would enamor us by your scriptures, you would recapture and sanctify our imagination by your scriptures, and you would form us in the image of Jesus. This is your moment, this is your hour, these are your people. Have your way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just a few weeks ago, I found out of a great travesty. I found out of a horrific fact among my community of friends, and that there are some that I associate with as friends who have never seen the greatest TV show of all time, the TV show Lost. I know some of you just judge me really hard there, right? It's the greatest TV show, in my estimation, of all time. It's absolutely my favorite TV. I often talk about the show Lost uh, like it's an old high school girlfriend that just messed me up so bad I can never get another relationship anymore, It is true. My wife is my witness. I have not watched another TV drama since Lost. I just can't do it. It doesn't live up to my expectations. Uh, And some of you are like, but the ending is so terrible. Shame on you. Shame on you. It's a fantastic ending. You can't make Lost play by your rules. You take it on its own terms, and it's phenomenal right? It's phenomenal. Well, I love the show Lost, and so a few weeks ago when I found out there's some that I'm friends with that haven't seen it, well, my wife and I just said, well, Thursday night is now Lost Night at the Kinzer House, and we're re-watching this thing every episode all six seasons. It's going down, right? So that's been happening over and over again, and I'm reminded of why I love the show so much. In the first season, one of the things I love about the show, and if you've never seen it, I'm about to spoil some things, but you should have seen it by now, right? We're going to relive 2004 all over again, one of the things I love about the show is the way that the writers did the hard work of going into the backstory of these characters and showing kind of what was going on in their life before the plane crash. Spoiler alert, right? What was going on in their life before the plane crash? What was going on in their life that led them to Sydney, Australia, to board this plane to L.A.? What was happening in their life? How did they get to that airport? What was the backstory before the airport? What is their character? What's the narrative of their life? And then they get on the island, and it's this sort of redemption island where there's a second chance to be someone different. I, I love the narratives and the back work of the character building that that the writers do. There's something I love about the show. And what I know about that is that's true for all of us. There's something of your own story that you see, and it's almost like it's the predated before things got really good with this is us, that was this is us before this is us, right? At least in my mind. I'm the TV critic today, I guess, huh? And so he- here's what I mean by all of that. All of us have these set of experiences, all of us have these set of preconceived ideas from different things that we've gone through, different circumstances that we've been involved with, that now play on us in a way that in the present moment, we act and react because of things that have happened in our past in ways we feel like we have to protect ourselves, prove ourselves, show up, and be somebody, and let everyone know. Right? There's ways in which past experiences play into our present and force us to act and react in a certain way because we either have fears, insecurities, anxieties, or we have ambition in a certain direction, right? And that's exactly what's going on in the book of Jonah in the chap- fourth chapter today. What I mean by that is that all through this book, we've been seeing in the first three chapters the way that Jonah has been acting a fool. We've been seeing the ways that he's running around on God, he's refusing to obey, he's playing religious games, he's half-hearted toward people. We see the way he's acting out, but now in chapter four, what happens is God gives us the backstory right? God pulls back the curtain and shows what's going on in Jonah's heart. What are some of his preconceived ideas? What are some of his past experiences? Who is Jonah that now shows him now in the present acting this certain way? What has happened to him that leads him now in the present to act the way he does, respond the way he has, right? That's what's happening in Jonah chapter 4. And so there's three sort of movements that are happening in this chapter. There's three questions that this, that this chapter is going to help us answer as we finish out the book. And the first is this, what is Jonah's problem? Right? We've been seeing Jonah's got some serious problems through the first three chapters. Now we're going to figure out what the heck is Jonah's problem. Right? That's, that's the first question. The second question is, so how does God deal with Jonah's problems? that's what we're gonna see in the book is how does God deal with Jonah? How does God deal with his problems? And then the last thing I want us to see today is all the ways that makes implications for the question, how does God deal with me and my problems? So what's Jonah's problem? How does God deal with Jonah's problems? And then what does that mean for me and the way God deals with me and my problems, right? That's gonna be our structure today. So let's get to the first one. What's Jonah's problem? So just so that we're all on the same page, and we're catch, caught up to speed on what's been happening to this point. Jonah has received a word from the Lord to go to Nineveh. We'll talk about Nineveh in a second. But those were some hated people. It was the capital of the nation of Syria. Those were hated people by the Hebrews, by the Jewish people. They were a great threat to their national safety, national security. They were a horrific, barbaric kind of people. Again, we'll talk about them in a second. God says, go to them. Jonah says, no, I will not go to them. He goes literally the opposite geographic direction, right? He goes the opposite direction. He gets on a boat, sails away. The sailors, a storm comes. They start freaking out. Jonah says, it's because of me, guys. Just throw me overboard, kill me. They do so. God relents from the storm, and then he swallows Jonah up in a fish. He's there for a few days. You know this part of the story. He prays. The, the fish vomits him out. And he says, okay, finally I'll go to Nineveh. He goes, he, pray, he, goes half, he goes a third of the way in. And he preaches a half-hearted sermon. And the whole city repents. Like there's a citywide revival that breaks out, right? That's what's been happening through these first three chapters. Jonah sees the citywide revival. Through the first three chapters, Jonah is the only one in this story who hasn't obeyed God. In chapter one, the wind and the waves obey God. In chapter two, the fish obeys God. In chapter three, the entire city of Nineveh obeys God, right? Through these first three chapters, Jonah's the only one in this whole story who hasn't repented, hasn't turned from sin, right? In chapter one, the sailors, the pagan sailors, repented and worshiped God after the seas were calmed. They became Christians, right? In chapter three, right, the whole city of Nineveh repents and turns to God. At the end of chapter three, God himself repents, thinking of the judgment, the disaster he would bring on Nineveh. It's like the writer is showing us the extent to which everyone understands what it looks like to turn and Jonah is steadfast in his hard heartedness. right? That's what's happening through the first three chapters. And this book goes forward to now tell us that Jonah is more and more growing through these first three chapters. He's growing in self-righteousness and he's showing off this really gross, arrogant shade of entitlement and self-importance. So look back at three verse 10 and I'll show you what happens here as chapter three comes to a close and Nineveh repents. When God saw what they did, how they turn from their evil way. It says God relented from the disaster that he would do to them, and he did not do it. Okay, so this should be the ending of the book. Like if, you're, if you didn't know there was a chapter four, chapter three ends with this really sort of nice, clean ending. It ends with a bow on top. Jonah goes in to preach. The whole city repents. God relents of the disaster and they walk forward happily ever after, right? This should be the ending. Like if this were a movie, if this were a really bizarre movie of a guy who gets swallowed up in a fish and then goes to save a city, right? This would be the ending, a great ending to a kind of a bizarre movie. But nonetheless, we'd go, gosh, that was weird. I'm glad I paid $95 to go see that movie at the theater. Uh, This is great, you know, and you'd walk away feeling good about it. No one's expecting a chapter four, Like if you didn't know there was a chapter four, get out of your church brain for a second. If you didn't know there was a chapter four, you'd go, I'm done here. But then there's a chapter four. So then you think if there's one more verse, if there's one more verse to this, if we could add one more verse to the whole city repents, God doesn't uh, destroy them, God's for them now, God gives them favor. If there were one more verse to this, we'd expect maybe it's something like, and Jonah goes back to Jerusalem, rejoicing in the salvation of the Lord. Like that's kind of the one more verse you might expect on this, right? But that's not the one more verse we get. Look at four, verse one. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he became angry. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. The Hebrew phrase here says that he saw it as a great evil. That he saw them turning, God turning, and them going on their way with God. He saw that as a great evil. It displeased him exceedingly, and he became angry. And then it goes on, he says, he prays. Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still in my country? That I made haste to flee to Tarshish? For I knew, I know God, I know with all my heart, you are a gracious God, you're merciful, you're slow to anger, you're abounding in steadfast love and you relent from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. What in the world? Like, do you feel the tension of this? It's almost like if you're reading this and if you're kind of watching this as a movie, you wanna kind of pull Jonah out of the, out of, the, out of the action for a second, have a have an aside cameo with him and go, what's wrong with you? Like, what's going on with you? You've reached the pinnacle of what it is to be a preacher and a prophet. You show up with a really bad sermon, by the way. You don't even mention God, yet God uses your really bad sermon to change the culture and transform an entire city in a moment there are all kinds of Christians and non-Christians that would give their right hand to be a part of a city transformation like that. They would give anything in a moment to go, I wanna be a part of changing an entire city's culture for good, turning away from violence and injustice. And you do that with a really bad sermon and then it happens and then you walk away angry. What's wrong with you? Like that's what all of us would want to say. Jonah hated Nineveh. He hated Nineveh with all his heart. We've talked at length about in the first week about how, how horrific and barbaric this, this society was. They, are, they were some of the most um, savage people uh, in, in, in sort of the ancient civilizations. They were a horrific group of people. They were an oppressive force to all the surrounding nations. They were a heated enemy of the nation of Israel. Uh, they, they, they overtake Israel. They enslave Israel time and time again. They were a savage, savage group of people. The Assyrians, Nineveh being the capital city, they were a military and political threat to Israel They had been an oppressive force for years and years. And in Jonah's mind, in Jonah's mind, the only energy that would be worth God's time toward the Ninevites is the one second it would take God and his power to nuke them. In Jonah's mind, that's the only amount of energy they would be worth from God. Just at your command, nuke these fools, clear them off the face of the earth. In Jonah's mind, that's what he wanted. And this is why he says in verse two, God, I know that you're, I know that you're gracious, I know that you're merciful, I I know that you're slow to anger, I know that you're abounding in love, I know you do this, right? This is why he praised that. The fact that God would show lavish mercy toward these people, that he would share with the Ninevites the same kind of covenant love that he had given to Israel, in Jonah's mind that was inconceivable. God, how could you love this group of people? After all they've done to your chosen people, after all they've done to all these other kinds of people, you're gonna give them the same kind of love you've given us? In Jonah's mind, it's inconceivable. And he knew God would do it, which is crazy, right? He goes, God, I know that you're, I know that you're loving like this. And so here's what I find interesting about this. For all the talk in our sort of society about God being judgmental and God being this sort of anti all things bad and he's anti all these different kinds of people groups that uh, his agenda is against, for all this talk about God being a, a judge, judge and, a, and a, an angry grandfather in the sky waiting to stomp out people, for all that kind of talk, Jonah's problem with God here isn't that he's too judgmental. Jonah's problem with God here is that he knows that he's, in his mind, too loving. Like the reason that he didn't want to go there is because he says, God, I know your heart. I know you would save people. And here's what's so fascinating about chapter four. The surprising thing in chapter four is not that God would save the Ninevites. Like that's the matter of fact thing. And here's just a side note that's really not a part of this sermon at all, but just I think it's good for us to recognize in this passage. It's not surprising at all that God would bring revival to a crazy city. In this passage, sometimes we think revival would be a crazy thing if God would do it. In this passage, that's normative in God's heart. Bringing revival to a bunch of sinners is normative in God's heart. The crazy thing in Jonah is that Jonah acts like a fool. Not that God brings revival, that's like, well, of course he would. He's God. Like he can do that any moment. The crazy thing is, Jonah, why are you such a crazy person? Like that's what's going on in this book. And so Jonah's problem with God is that, God, you're too loving. In Jonah's mind, he's too soft on sin. In Jonah's mind. And so I tried to think of the equivalent of this just to sort of give us a picture of what's going on here, to feel something of what Jonah might feel. And so bear with me for a second. Imagine imagine if the next great global revival broke out among the ISIS community. And then it spread from there to radical Islamic jihadists. And then out from those communities, missionaries were sent out all over the world, even to the U.S. And God used them to finish off the Great Commission and bring his gospel to every tribe, people, and nation, even bringing those last places in the U.S. to repentance that God intends to save. What if God used radical Islamic terrorist jihadists to bring the gospel to your children and great-grandchildren, and they repented and believed from there? I don't know if some of us in the room know what to do with that. (laughs) And some of you are thinking, yeah, that is a crazy thought, you know? That would never happen. Imagine if... It wouldn't happen. You ever heard of the Apostle Paul? He was a serial murderer of Christians. Because they were Christians. Like a serial murderer of Christians. Cold-blooded murder. Simply because they named Christ. God saves him. And he becomes the greatest missionary. Our faith has ever seen, wrote three-fourths of the New Testament. You're saying, that would be a crazy, that's not a crazy thought at all. That's actually just like God to do that. And so wherever that makes you cringe, that's not God's problem. Wherever that makes me, because it makes me cringe a little bit too, that's not God's problem. Jonah, hated Nineveh. He hated them. And so for Jonah, God's mercy to Nineveh caused him a sense of nationalistic shame. How could he go back to his people and report that God used him as an agent of mercy to their greatest enemy and their greatest threat to national security and national identity? In Jonah's mind, he could not go back to Jerusalem and say anything like that. He goes, I would just rather die. I would rather die. And so his solution wasn't to go back to his people. His solution, check this. This is only this. In this book, Jonah has prayed twice now. The first time he prays a fake prayer just to get God on his side and get him out of a fish's mouth. This time, the second prayer he prays is a prayer sown out of racism and hate. And he says, God, just kill me now. Like these are the prayers from Jonah in this book, right? He would rather this happen. So here's here's Jonah's problem. Here's the bottom line of said all of this to get to this point. Here's Jonah's problem. He had a divided heart. Jonah had a divided heart. He was caught in the tension of his own divided loyalties and affection. On the one hand, he has love for the true God. He says in this book, I fear the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. I'm a Hebrew. I'm part of the people of God. He loved God. Don't get me wrong. He loved God. But he had tension on the one hand with love for God. And on the other hand, he had an equal love for his own nationalistic Jewish supremacy. And in his mind, love for God and love for country, love for his people, those two things went hand in hand. Until, until push comes to shove and he sees the heart of God isn't foremost concerned with his nationalistic security as he defined it, but that God is most concerned with his glory being seen and savored among all the peoples of the earth. Man, that stings. God is not foremost concerned with Jonah's sense of national security and national pride as he understands it. He's foremost concerned with his glory being known, being seen, being savored, being rejoiced in by all the peoples of the globe. That's what's going on here, even to among his greatest enemies. And so, in Jonah's mind, worshiping God is well and good so long as God lines up with all of Jonah's preferences and political agendas. But the second that worshiping God means choosing between God and his rival God of nationalism, he turns on the true God. He turns on the true God. Now now pause with me for a second. Because what's really easy at this point in hearing all of this is to go, man, Jonah does have some problems, right? right? And we could just read this as a story. It's Old Testament. That's Old Testament stuff, right? We're we're New Testament people. That's Old Testament stuff. So, I mean, this is just kind of suggestive. I don't really need this. It'd be easy to abstract this as Old Testament, abstract this as Jonah's problems, abstract this as as a story written thousands of years ago. This is not about us. But listen, to do that we would bypass the purpose of this book. Remember, Jonah serves to us like a mirror. We are more like Jonah than we wanna talk about. The reason that Jonah felt this kind of disillusionment and acted the way he had throughout this entire book, and the reason we at times feel the same in our own life with God, is because we have made room to have affections for more than one God in our heart. Jonah felt tension because he had two gods living inside of him. And the reason we feel tension at different moments in our life is because we have two gods living inside of us. On the one side, we have true love for God, and on the other side, we have love for the God of our own preferences, the God of our own agendas, and the God of our comforts. And so, here's the question that's interesting. That I, this, this, this stung me this week. The question is not. <laughs> the question is not. Do we have the same problem as Jonah? That's not the question we're asking. The answer to that question is clear. We do. We have the same exact problem as Jonah. The only question we ought to be asking as we read this is what's the rival God we've made room for? That's the the only question. And here's what's so interesting about asking that in our church. Like like we preach on idolatry and false gods all the time. And so some ways you're like, this sounds like the same same sermon, just preached from a different text. Because it is. <laughs> the message of our own idolatry and, and worship of false gods is literally all through the Bible. Like, that's what's happening all through the Bible, and God still shows up and still chases us down. And so, here are a couple of questions to diagnose your own heart and kind of identifying your rival God. And I'll frame these in the negative because that's the context of Jonah. Here's the first one How do you respond? to unanswered prayers and frustrated hopes? How do you respond to unanswered prayers and frustrated hopes? The reason I ask that question is very often our own negative emotions reveal the places that we feel our security being threatened. Negative emotions are often a trigger saying, your sense of security is being threatened. And so I feel hot about this. I feel negative about this. I feel angry about this. And so then there's the result of whatever comes later. What if you didn't get what you wanted? Or what if what you really love were taken from you? What, what area of your life would cause you to say like Jonah, I would just rather not go on anymore? If, if God didn't give you something that you really wanted, or something that you really love was taken from you, what is that thing that would cause you to say like Jonah, it's just not worth living anymore? Whatever that thing is, is the thing that you've made your purpose in life, even if you wouldn't say so. It's the thing that's given you a sense of meaning. You have God and you have that thing. And they're destined to be at odds at some point or other. You you can't serve two masters. Jesus tells us that, right? You can't serve two masters. So here's the second question. Where in your life do you consistently get the most down on yourself? In what area of your life do you consistently find yourself at a place of self-pity? Where do you feel bad about yourself? Where where, where do you feel like you lack a sense of worth? All of us have those places. Even the most self-confident person in this room has places like that where you get down on yourself, you have pity, you you feel like you've got to prove something, you have a lack of worth. Whatever area drives those dark thoughts, those emotions, those fears, in that place you'll find another God that you've made room for as though the true God isn't enough to answer those longings for you, right? So the hard work is identify Jonah's rival God was nationalistic security and supremacy. What is your rival God? What is the rival God in your life that even amidst all these blessings you have, you would still say, it's not worth it. I'd rather just quit now because we have it. But this gets us to the second point today. How does God respond to Jonah? Like how does God deal with Jonah's problems? Here's what's interesting about the rest of this passage. Three different times in this chapter, God asks Jonah a question three different times in this chapter, and here's what's fascinating. These these aren't the kind of questions you would think. We'd expect questions of interrogation after Jonah's acted the way he has. We'd expect questions of interrogation. We'd expect questions of ultimatum. We'd expect uh, God to flex some sort of authoritarian role over Jonah and cause fear and threat, but that's not at all what we get. Look back at verse four. Look at verse four. It says this. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? (laughs) So again, this is a question of invitation. This isn't God smiting Jonah. This isn't God giving Jonah a threat. This isn't God saying, you better straighten up or else Jonah. He just looks at Jonah and he says, "Do, do you do well to be angry? This is a question of invitation. God is pursuing Jonah. God's not putting Jonah in timeout. He's not grounding him. He's not taking privileges away from him. He's actually trying to invite him into more relationships saying, hey, come over here and party with me. A whole city just got saved. He's wooing Jonah. He's pursuing Jonah. And for all the lunacy of Jonah's rebellion, this is God's first response to him. Just asks a question. And here's what's so ironic about this. God is acting toward Jonah with the same patience and same pursuit as he has his religi- the irreligious heathens of Nineveh. It's the same patience, the same love, and Jonah can't see it. Look at verse nine, the second question. We'll pick up in verse five, but the question's in verse nine. It says, so Jonah went out of the city and sat under the east of the city and made a booth for himself. And he sat under the shade Uh, Until he could see what would become of the city. So he looks and he goes, Okay, they've turned, but maybe God will still judge them. That's kind of the whole idea there. I want to see this. I don't want to miss it. Verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Look at verse 6. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Stop there for a second. Through four chapters, Jonah has received wild mercy from God, and this is the first time we see Jonah crack a smile because of a plant. Just let that sit in for a second. The first time, okay, he should have had his life completely smashed by the storm. He should have had his life completely smashed by the whale. He should have had his life completely smashed by the crazy Ninevites telling him that in 40 days they were going to die. None of that happens. He gets angry, and the first time he cracks a smile is because a plant gave him shade on his head. I mean, just, the, iron, the irony of this is crazy. Verse 7, But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm and attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than live, and here's 9 the second question. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? (laughs) And he says, yes, angry enough to die. Second question, Jonah is a spoiled, entitled, self-righteous brat. And God just asks him another question, not time out. He doesn't ground him. He doesn't remove Hebrew privileges. God just asks him a question, Jonah, think with me for a second. A plant, not even a cool plant, like one that can't even live more than a day. Like it only has one bloom and it's done. You're not planting this one in your garden, Jonah. The only time you get happy is because of a plant and you're going to get mad and die because of a plant. Jonah, a plant. God's just entreating him. Wooing him, chasing him. Jonah, wake up. Can you see the logic is crazy? Okay, verse 10, one more question. And the Lord said, you pity the plant. Here's what's interesting. The word pity in Hebrew means to bring tears to your eyes. So you have tears in your eyes because of the plant for which you did not labor. You didn't make it grow. You had nothing to do with this plant. You poured no energy into this plant. It came into being in a night and it perished in a night. And you've got tears in your eyes because of this plan. Verse 11. And God says, Should I not pity Nineveh? Should I not have tears in my eyes for Nineveh, that great city, which there are 120,000 persons made in my image? That's the implication there. That I made to be my image bearers, to display my glory. Should I not pity them who don't know their right hand from their left? The sense of that is that they're stuck in their evilness, they're stuck in their sin, and they don't know the way out. That's what he means by that phrase. Should I not pity them? <laughs> I love just the irony of this. And also much cattle? <laughs> Should I just leave Nineveh to hell in a handbasket? Made my image, made for my glory? You're crying about a plant? Do I not have the prerogative to cry about people made in my image God says again he asks him a question he's not angry with him he's just saying Jonah can you see a bigger picture of what's going on your racism stinks your hate stinks your self-righteousness makes no sense I gave you shade you didn't earn that you didn't deserve that he feels entitled to the shade then he cries the shade's gone He can't see blessings as blessings. He just feels entitled to them that God owes them to him, right? And so he says, do I not have the right? If you have the right to cry over this plant, do I not have the right to cry over people made in my image? So the way God deals with Jonah and his problems is he just pursues him. Now, here's where we get to the close. So then how does God deal with us and our problems? This is what I find so fascinating. This book is a problem for us in Western society. The reason that you don't like lost is because it didn't give you the ending you wanted, right? The reason that we might have a problem with this book is it doesn't give us the ending we want. This book ends with a question. This book ends with a question. So you're kind of left going, so does does Jonah repent? Does does Jonah step up and roll with God? Does he finally run away forever? Choose your own adventure, right? Right? you're not given the answer. And here's what's so fascinating about this. It's like the book ends under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit where Jonah steps out of the way and the spear that's flying lands directly in your heart. Because ultimately this is not this is not a question for Jonah to answer, although he had to, he's responsible. This is a question you and I have to answer. Will we repent? Will we be humble? Will we acknowledge where We have things in our hearts that don't belong there. We roll with God. We look at that. And here's what I find so beautiful about this. Some of you walk in today and you're carrying some shame and you're carrying some guilt and you're not sure what God thinks about you and you're not sure how God approaches you. And here's what I want you to hear from this and see how this, how does God deal with you and your problems? In the same way he dealt with Jonah, he shows up, not with interrogation questions. He shows up with entreating questions that call you to relationship. When I read this all week, I thought about Peter on the seashore. He had denied Jesus three times, betrayed Jesus in his darkest hour, three times rolled on him, took took the way of convenience. The resurrection happens. Peter's so ashamed, he can't even really hang around with the disciples. He says, I'm gonna go fishing. The resurrected Christ shows up on the seashore, calls out to Peter. Peter takes off his robe to keep from anything holding him in the water. He runs to the seashore to meet Jesus. This is the first conversation he's going to have with Jesus. He's probably expecting to have some sort of speech prepared for Jesus as to how none of that really mattered or he didn't mean all of that, and I'm sorry for all of that. Or Jesus to have some sort of fist to throw in his face to say, I'm resurrected now, better than I came the first time. You're going to deny me now? Watch this. Neither of those happen. Jesus is there on the seashore, I don't know how this happened. Breakfast is already prepared. And he sits down and he says, Peter, let's talk. And he asks him three times, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He doesn't come to us in our shame. He doesn't come to us in our guilt. He doesn't come to us in our places of fear and insecurity with a fist or with ultimatums. He comes with the warmth of inviting questions of relationship. Hear that, hear that. That's so beautiful. But it's also true, we have to ask the, answer the question that's being asked in Jonah. And he says, do I not have the right to weep over the 120,000 who don't have a clue of how to get out of their, their junk? The question we need to ask and answer for ourselves is, look at the things that you weep over and then look at the things that God weeps over. Look at the things that you love and that move you to tears, and look at the things that God loves and moves him to tears. And the question you ought to ask is, whose glory am I more consumed in? Am I more concerned with God playing by my agenda and meeting the needs of my rival God? Or am I more concerned with saying, God, you're enough. Your agenda is the only agenda that matters. Take mine and throw it away. Just give me you and give me your heart. The invitation of the end of Jonah with the question is an invitation to relationship with God where God is saying, I know you wanna be close to me and your desire is the same as mine. I wanna be close to you. Will you join me in my mission of spreading the fame of my great name? And so I wanna end by just talking about Jesus for a second. The greater Jonah. You're saying, how do I come around it? How, How do I come around answering that question and weeping for what God weeps over? The answer is you look to Jesus. That's how you do it. You keep looking to Jesus. So Jesus is the greater Jonah. Just like Jonah, a prophet of God, goes outside of the city to see if God would judge the city, Jesus, the greater Jonah, goes outside of the city not to see if God would judge the city, but he goes outside of the city to take the judgment of the city on a hill called Golgotha. Just like Jonah, Jesus goes outside the city. Not to say, God, take my life. I don't want to be here and interact with those people, but to say, God, take my life so that those people could be my people. Jesus says, I don't want to see you judge them. Judge me. And so when you look at Jesus, you just keep looking at Jesus. His heart over time becomes your heart. His heart over time woos you to respond. Yes, God, you have every prerogative to weep over the city. Now as I look at Oklahoma City, my city, can my heart see what your heart sees and can my heart weep like your heart weeps? I want to see your gospel, God, go to every kind of people group right now that in my mind, I think they're too far gone. Right now in my mind, when I think about that people group, I tend to roll my eyes. Right now when I think about those people in those corners of my city, I just write them off. God, bring the gospel to them and let them bring me revival. That's what's going on in this moment. Will you join me in that? Will you join me in that? Look to Jesus. One of my favorite quotes comes from this old Puritan pastor. I think it'll be on the screens. It says, for every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at Jesus. He's altogether lovely and there will be no more room for folly, for stupid weeping over plants, no more room for the world, no more room for Satan, no more room for the flesh. For every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at him, that his heart would become ours That we would not act like fools like Jonah. This is about God's grace, God's pursuit for the world. Will you join me?